This is Becoming Maeve, a paperless story inspired by true events, written by Pamela Rickman and read by me, Jamie Clayton. Becoming Maeve is a story told in two halves. This framing reflects the wishes of its central subject and is by no means intended to reflect the experiences of an entire group or community. It also covers sensitive subjects. Listener discretion is advised. If only he could block out the smell. Michael's head was throbbing, but it was the rancid wind from a gyoza factory behind his apartment that made him want to puke. Kobayashi Mansion was an exalted name for this decrepit complex in Shinjuku, a working-class enclave in central Tokyo. With its beige stucco and external staircases, it could have been a Detroit Holiday Inn. But this was Japan in 1985, and Westerners like Michael had been lured here by the promise of capitalism. There was money to be made from middle-aged Japanese salarymen who needed English to ascend the ranks. For Michael and other conversation teachers, that meant money to be blown at discos. Tokyo nights were a raucous boon, but mornings like this were just brutal. Michael swished his mealy tongue, wiping the crusted saliva on his lips, and surveyed the wreckage of his binge. A toppled beer bong dribbling vodka beside his combat boots, and the red punk pants he'd tossed in a corner after going commando under a shirt dress. In a mirror, Michael spied his Duran-Duran hair clumped in spikes of sweat, the smears of lipstick and eyeliner marring his face, and the lightning bolt a friend shaved into his chest hair. After getting liquored up at the apartment, Michael and his friends had wandered through a warren of dark, narrow alleys, then crisscrossed the gutters past hookers and vending machines selling used women's underwear toward the neon lights of Roppongi. This was Tokyo's entertainment district, and it made Times Square look like a blackout. Squinting in the glare, Michael elbowed through jam-packed streets to the club, and once inside, he felt all the eyes on him. Broad and fair, with blue eyes, full lips, and sharp cheekbones, Michael stood out. Back in America, he'd been shy and awkward, paralyzed by a fear of rejection. From age six, he was repulsed by what he saw in the mirror and plagued by a voice in his head saying, you're ugly, you're stupid, you're going to fail. He hated his body, his face, his feelings, his thoughts. He hated everything about this boy in the mirror. But in Japan, Michael was royalty, free to live as he liked. No one balked when he arrived at clubs wearing dresses, makeup, and earrings. No one questioned when he dressed as a woman year after year for Halloween. He was exotic, coveted, and pursued. Each night he'd find a girl, grind her in the pounding music and pulsing lights, then escape to a nearby love hotel for an hour in a filthy room. After a quick fuck, he'd return to the club. Sometimes he'd land two girls per night, four girls per weekend. He never saw them again. Now, the morning after the party, Michael cursed the hot waves of nausea that bubbled in his gut. He'd had hangovers before, but this was cruel. Outside, under a gray sky, a Shinto festival was underway, 
with acolytes praising a shrine held aloft by priests in loincloths. The braying of their haunted, high-pitched flute felt profane, aimed to pierce his mind and drive him insane. Michael writhed in bed, feverish and fraught. He reached for a beer and prayed to die. Decades later, in an apartment on Manhattan's Upper East Side, Michael would be retching on the floor again. Lying here, trapped in a tortured body, spiraling from addiction, he'd think about his wife, Jackie, his daughter, his two sons, how he'd failed them and himself. As he edged a blade closer to the blue veins of his wrists, his clouded mind would wander back to the torment and rapture of Tokyo before he ditched Japan and followed the money to Wall Street. For nearly two decades, he worked in the corporate communications office at Goldman Sachs, and he got used to working under fire. Each day, he'd arise before dawn and don a uniform, Hugo Boss suit, white shirt, and Brooks Brothers tie, an armor of sorts for doing battle with the press. But this ongoing war took a turn for the worse in December 2007. For the better part of a year, the economy had shown signs of fracture. And then all at once, it crashed. That's when the Wall Street Journal ran a story that sounded an alarm for Goldman Brass. It described how, as subprime mortgages wreaked havoc on Wall Street and Main Street alike, a group of Goldman traders raked in nearly $4 billion by betting that these dicey home loans would tank in value. In this market, the story was the kiss of death. Even worse, Goldman was being accused of screwing its clients, continuing to sell mortgage-backed securities deals to investors while using the firm's own money to hedge or bet against them. In a move Goldman's chief financial officer called the Big Short. Michael had worked for other banks, but the stakes were higher at Goldman. While rival firms are chop shops where lunkheads drool for cash, Goldman considers itself refined, a bastion of intellectual rigor. Saying you work at Goldman is like saying you went to Harvard. It conveys power and prestige, a sense of having arrived. Michael liked to say that behind only hedge funds, Goldman is capitalism in its purest form. Competition is fierce and invigorating as the firm's 50 floors vibrate with raw ambition and unquenchable thirst to prevail. People work harder here because it's tough to get in and even tougher to stay. There is no margin for error. So in the wake of the Wall Street Journal article, when the press launched a heated assault, Michael stood on the front lines. He took the call from Matt Taibbi, who in the pages of Rolling Stone had called Goldman a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money. Did Goldman care to comment? Shit, Michael thought. This might be sensationalist drivel from a music magazine, but Taibi had a gift for words. After preparing his response, Michael took his notes to a sunlit glass office overlooking the Hudson River, where his boss, Goldman's legendary spokesman, Lucas Van Prague, was waiting. Silver-haired and silver-tongued, Van Prague was a cult figure on Wall Street, 
equally beloved and reviled for his flamboyance and how he reveled in condescending to reporters. Upon reviewing Michael's notes, Van Prag leaned back and stared at the ceiling. No, he declared. The firm wouldn't dignify the article with a response. But then he couldn't help himself. Before the day was through, Van Prag had denounced the Rolling Stone article as an hysterical compilation of conspiracy theories. Public outcry ensued, and Michael sat glued to his desk for a week, getting blasted for Goldman's arrogance. It was clear that Goldman needed a coordinated strategy, so Van Prag and Michael got tactical, mobilizing their department's employees into battalions. Together, they would rip these stories to shreds. The moment a threatening article appeared online, Michael would dissect it, devising bullet points to refute every accusation. His team would scramble to interview stakeholders around the firm, gleaning data to support Goldman's rebuttal. Then Michael would print their statement, Van Prague would take a pen to it, and within hours it would be blessed by legal, compliance, government relations, and business heads, then distributed to the press. But despite Michael's well-oiled machine, the press was rabid, flaying Goldman for AIG, Abacus, TARP money, Greek swaps, and death bonds. He spent countless hours crafting statements, honing slant and influence, perfecting pitch and tone. While his official response to a critique might be, no comment, he'd have already been on the phone explaining complex financial products to reporters, switching seamlessly from on the record to off the record to background. But Goldman couldn't just take punches. It had to hit back. Michael always read the press closely, but now he doubled down, combing every word in search of a slip. If a single thing had been misrepresented, he demanded corrections. He knew how corrections could hurt a reporter's career. And when, in an unprecedented move, the New York Times insisted that Goldman Flax speak only on the record, Michael and his colleagues started publishing all their comments on Goldman's website. This held the reporters accountable, too, ensuring they couldn't skirt the truth by cherry-picking quotes to further their agenda. Journalists knew to bring their A-game, or Michael would pounce. At a time when many Americans couldn't feed their kids, the announcement that Goldman chief executive Lloyd Blankfein would be paid nearly $70 million caused a feeding frenzy. Attempting to humanize Blankfein and cast the firm in a flattering light, Michael's Voss Van Prague organized an interview for Blankfein with the Times of London. In the subsequent 6,900-word bloodbath, Blankfein claimed that while he knew the world was angry, Goldman's projected $16 billion in urine bonuses was perfectly justified. Blankfein insisted that bankers serve a social purpose by creating wealth and doing God's work. Backlash was swift and lethal, and the phones on Michael's desk were once again alight. For a week, his team tried explaining that Blankfein had been duped. When the Times journalists asked, How are you doing? Blankfein had quipped, You know, just doing God's work. The journalist then twisted the remark, presenting it as a flippant dismissal of people's pain. But though Michael managed to get Blankfein's perspective out there, the damage was already done. Every hour presented a new disaster, and Michael lived on high alert. 
His days were an endless chess game of strategic calculations to maximize advantage. He had to commit to the game, to suppress everything else or he wouldn't survive. He fielded more crisis calls than any press officer in Goldman's history. The volume of inquiries on any given day exceeding the number the entire press office took in an average week. But while Michael defended Goldman's reputation, he was letting his own fall apart. He'd entered Goldman a dry drunk, but as the financial crisis escalated, Goldman got hammered and so did he. Each day before dawn, he drove from his home in Pound Ridge to the Stamford, Connecticut station to catch the express train to Manhattan. Often, he'd take his first swigs at 4.30 a.m., then buy a bottle of vodka or rum at a liquor store near Goldman's office that opened at 8.30. He'd drink all day at his desk, mixing rum with Diet Coke or vodka with Orangina, so he seemed to be hooked on soda. Then after work, he'd stop at a bar in Grand Central to slam two drinks before boarding his homebound train. Michael knew he was getting sloppy. He'd slur and trip or sleep at his desk, but he liked to believe no one noticed. He was shocked one Friday evening when a colleague approached to gently express her concern. As they were entering an elevator, she said, Michael, I've noticed how you've been. I'm worried about you. I really hope you can get the help you need. Michael felt sick. He knew he'd been outed the Monday before. It was always on Mondays that the horror of his life set in. He'd curse himself for getting wasted all weekend and neglecting his family, and he'd always be drunk before work. And when he got out on the road, he'd drink even more. Every time he boarded a plane, he feared he wouldn't return. Imagining his ugly body found in some foreign hotel. But the fear wasn't enough to stop him. Before a trip to Mexico City, he started drinking at 5 a.m., then bought wine at a JFK kiosk when it opened at 8, and polished off half a bottle of duty-free vodka on the flight. Upon arrival, instead of going into the office as planned, he canceled meetings and assignments to seek oblivion at his hotel. Somehow he had the foresight to visit a sauna before supervising two interviews for the president of Goldman Sachs. All through the interviews, Michael was mumbling and fuzzy, and he wondered from the president's glances whether he'd caught on. This wasn't the first time Michael slipped up. He'd already started ignoring calls from reporters who then churned out scathing pieces, blindsiding executives who blamed Michael for failing to prepare them. As the stakes for Goldman grew, Michael risked making a major mistake. He was viciously hung over in Washington when Senator Carl Levin blasted Goldman for misleading clients and manipulating markets. And after AIG revealed that it had executed more risky trades with Goldman than with any other bank and failed to secure a government bailout, Michael could barely speak. He'd been instructed to tell reporters that the banks tried to work with the Fed to orchestrate a private sector solution. And he managed to utter the line without slurring or stumbling. But when asked follow-up questions, he could only repeat himself. A Wall Street Journal reporter said, Dude, you need more coffee this morning. And Michael just shook his head. The guy had no clue what he needed. Each day at Goldman was like running through a minefield. But Michael wasn't safe at home either. His uncle Frank, with whom he'd always been close, had turned cold when Michael joined Goldman. 
The two men had spent a lifetime drinking and playing sports, but Frank was a liberal who decried Wall Street's wicked ways. Now at family gatherings, he'd turn his back frostily, refusing to speak to Michael. Frank couldn't stomach that his nephew was thriving in this world, rising through the ranks as an apologist and spin doctor for the firm. And Michael's wife Jackie was also on his case. She couldn't see his day drinking, but she knew he was drunk at night. And she knew that on weekends, Michael would say he was going to recovery meetings, then hide with a bottle in the woods. Their life was full of lies, but Jackie was too exhausted to confront him. Their eight-year-old son, Connor, had been diagnosed with a rare pediatric form of cancer. A Wilms tumor that began in his kidneys was now compressing his internal organs and protruding from his side. This excruciating tragedy had in some ways brought the couple together. Michael had been working so hard for so long, missing their boys' swim meets and tennis tournaments to manage Goldman crises. But the day of Connor's first surgery, he and Jackie spent hours holding hands in a recovery room at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. At that moment, Michael vowed to be a better father. But his promise was short-lived. When Connor developed a massive infection and was placed in an induced coma for three weeks, the couple stayed at the hospital in shifts. Separated from his wife, Michael began living a double life, staying sober at the hospital with Connor, but getting wasted at home. When he also got drunk at the hospital one night, Jackie could no longer hide her disgust. With a force belying her diminutive size, she inveighed against him for deserting their family. He debased himself before the children, she said, and robbed her of a fully present life. When her mother lay dying or Connor was suffering, she couldn't focus on their needs, always worrying about what Michael might do next. And then one day, her worst fears came true. On the day Connor was scheduled to be discharged from the hospital, Michael woke early with a hangover. He'd been up late the night before, guzzling Diet Coke and rum while watching back-to-back -back Conan the Barbarian movies. He'd planned to go for a run but couldn't muster the energy, not even to sweat out the booze. His self-hatred had festered into something alive, something pulsing. Afraid he'd cause an accident or kill someone, he'd stopped driving in the city years ago. But this morning he had no choice. He'd promised Jackie that he'd pick up her and Connor at the hospital. As the time to leave crept closer, Michael's anxiety peaked. He opened a bottle of syrupy liquid morphine, one of the prescriptions he'd filled for Connor. Maybe it would ease his jitters, he thought. Anything to take the edge off. He was cautious at first, just a few small sips, but after a few minutes with no effects, he chugged. The certainty that he shouldn't be driving was as real as the feeling of his hands on the wheel. As he steered down the sloping dirt driveway of his five-acre property, he began hitting rocks and trees, shaking the wheel for some semblance of control. He remembered little about the accident, just that about a mile away from home, he ran a motorcyclist off the road. Michael stopped to give him his insurance card and mutter about picking up his son before speeding off again. Around the next bend, he crashed into a stone wall, totaling Jackie's Volvo SUV. When he emerged from a stupor, he was handcuffed to a bed at Northern Westchester Hospital. 
Jackie and Connor were left waiting and wondering. But by then, they were used to him not showing up. At first, Michael didn't know whether he'd injured the motorcyclist and he assumed he'd be incarcerated. But thankfully, the guy wasn't hurt. For 18 months, Michael sobered up, enough time for his charge to be reduced to a DUI. But when he went back to drinking again, his wife threw him out. Jackie had stopped trusting him years ago. And now she insisted that Michael put $50,000 in her bank account before he moved to a sober house in Manhattan. After a few months of sobriety, however, Michael felt confident, which should have been a red flag. He rented an apartment on East 84th Street, where he was living when Jackie slapped him with divorce papers. He went AWOL for a week, chugging as much rum and vodka as his body could stomach. At one point, after a rum run, Michael fell on his face, gashing his forehead and cracking his two front teeth. Days merged and swirled as he sweated and puked and drank again, leaving trails of blood and shit on the sheets as he tried to quiet that raging inner voice, the one that had pursued him since childhood and that he'd silenced for years with the bottle. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're going to fail. Every now and then his mind drifted back to Tokyo. The voice had been silent there, at least sometimes. How many mornings had he spent in agony fantasizing about ending his life? Now he would take action. Michael stumbled to the kitchen, pulled a serrated cutting knife from the drawer, and dragged it over his wrist, leaving white trails in his skin. What if he did it this time? What if he plunged in the knife? When he came to, he could barely see, but from the stains on his clothes and carpet, he knew he was bleeding. He heard his phone ringing as it had many times over the past days. Instead of ignoring this call, he answered. He would never know exactly how a representative from his sober house got him to the hospital, but he spent a week in detox, took a three-month leave from Goldman, and entered intense outpatient therapy. Four days per week, four hours per day, grasping for the will to live. Michael had always rejected spirituality. After a strict Catholic upbringing filled with more degradation than grace, he wasn't exactly devoted to God. He'd only ever prayed to die. But now he begged a higher power to show him a way forward. A way to live. And, in a sense... His prayer was answered. Ten months after his suicide attempt, Michael was back at his desk at Goldman when he felt a primal urge. Without stopping to question it, he strode intently to a Sephora store to buy eyeshadow and lipstick. Each row of color on the shelf felt like a portal, one he could step through into another better life. He fumbled with the products at first, smudging blush on his pristine white cuff, avoiding the curious eyes of eager salesgirls. Then hid in a men's bathroom stall and using a tiny hand mirror, applied blush all over his face, thinking it was foundation. Even with this bright pink visage, after a touch of eyeshadow and lipstick, he was beautiful. Hours later, at a night Badgett Fellowship dinner at the Marriott Marquis, he felt surreal. Mingling with journalists and bank colleagues he'd known for years. He assumed people noticed, but somehow no one said a word. 
Over the next dizzying, dazzling week, Michael progressed from wanting to wear makeup to wanting to dress like a woman to wanting to be a woman to recognizing that she'd always been a woman. It came to her in waves, and each time she had a new realization, she'd try to talk herself out of it. But the feeling wouldn't go away. She now understood why she'd felt free in Tokyo and why her mind kept drifting back. There, even in ritual cosplay, she'd accessed her true self. Being a woman was something she'd never consciously recognized, yet had known on some level, always. She went to a recovery meeting wearing women's clothing, joined a transgender support group and met transgender friends. She began decorating a new Chelsea pad as an homage to Pussy. George O'Keefe prints over a velvet pink couch with pillows sourced from a sex shop, adorned with satin labial folds and beads in all the right places. Within a few months, she was taking female hormones and preparing for gender affirmation surgery. Her confidence swelled as she became Maeve, a chosen Irish name that means, ironically, she who intoxicates. The shoulder-length, dirty blonde hair rouged cheeks and sparkly nails, the red dress, hot pink boots, and sequin sneakers. This was how she was meant to be. When Maeve looked in the mirror, she loved what she saw. That tormenting inner voice was silent at last. Behind the polished exterior of a Goldman executive had lurked someone racked by misery and vice. Someone careening toward disaster, a person who destroyed himself so that she might live. But in the workplace, Michael still formed Maeve's shield. She'd arrive at work early from the gym in flowy pants with low-heeled boots and then change into one of the structured blue suits in her office closet. She felt like a fraud. And she was shaky as she settled the debts Michael had incurred on his way to rock bottom. Goldman couldn't fire her for being a drunk, but she'd still burned bridges with her colleagues. Maeve didn't blame them, but feeling isolated and marginalized in the office didn't help her recovery. How could she explain that nothing had been real before? They would never understand the alternating layers of numbness and emotion that had formed the walls of her existence. And so long as she suited up to take her place in the trenches every day, she knew there was no hope they would. As a professional crisis manager, she knew she had a major reputation issue. Maeve couldn't stay shut in Michael's disastrous narrative. She needed to push past Michael, out into the open of whatever sort of person Maeve would be. It was time to come out as transgender at Goldman. And after earning her PR black belt by scrapping with the press, she wasn't about to let someone else fight this battle for her. This was the most crucial story of her life, her own. Maeve let a New York Times writer follow her through the office. These were tense days for her. For the first time, she was herself at work, not a drunk shadow of a self. And at the same time as she was being reintroduced to colleagues, she was presenting herself to the journalist and to the world. It took the same awareness, the same responsiveness that she'd mastered during the financial crisis. 
Only this time, she wasn't defending an image. She was asserting one. Part of Maeve's recovery was surrendering to a higher power, believing that God's plan was better than anything a flat could script. And here was that fate unfolding. Where Michael had a career, Maeve now had a platform. The Times article was published to wide acclaim, and overnight, Maeve became a beacon for progressive politics within the conservative climate of finance. Some of the connections came from afar, like the calls she started getting from trans people all over corporate America, who'd always feared that their careers would be destroyed if they came out at work. Other connections came from closer to home, like the hospitality worker at Goldman who was still presenting as male, and who approached Maeve in the cafeteria to confide that she too was trans. Maeve began to realize that her struggle was just one among many, and that her survival was as much a sign of privilege as of perseverance. It was a daunting challenge to go from barely being able to drag herself through life to blazing a trail forward for others. She couldn't help but wonder if she was worthy of the role God was scripting. As she entered the 11th floor sky lobby one day, a Goldman banker approached her. Looking at him was like looking into the past, his suit exactly the sort of thing Michael would have chosen for work. But this man was actually carrying a message of the future. His child was trans, he said, and had read about Maeve. They had always thought it would be impossible to gain acceptance in a place like this, let alone succeed at the highest level. The banker wanted to thank Maeve for showing it could be done. Maeve watched him go. All the pain she'd caused flashing through her mind. To her wife. To her children. To herself. She knew the truth was more complex than this man or his child understood. But she also knew her story was so much bigger than herself. You've been listening to Paperless, an audio magazine by Vespucci.